Sarasana Singh, Chapter 6, The Homeless Wanderer. Sarasana Singh had already begun to wear the sadhu's dress when I first saw him at Kotkar. He took this step almost immediately after his baptism and thus fulfilled as a Christian the desire that had always been nearest to his mother's heart. His homeless condition as a wanderer, carrying neither purse nor scrip, had been literally thrust upon him, but he had welcomed it with gladness for Christ's sake, as a way of learning to be his true disciple. For Sunda's father, together with all his friends and relations, had banished him from home when once he had taken the final step, which made him outwardly as well as inwardly a Christian. The choice at that time lay before him either to depend on some mission for his support until he could obtain an income of his own or else to begin life afresh as a wandering sadhu living without any home or shelter from day to day, as the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, casting all his care upon God, who cared for him and loved him as his own child. As soon as the choice was thus presented to his mind, there was not a moment's hesitation. For his mother's ardent desire, his own deep longing, and his new idea of what true discipleship of Christ involved, all appeared to him to combine together in pointing to the life of a sadhu as the one which he was now called upon to follow. Therefore he had practically taken his choice even before he joined the church. While this decision came to him instinctively as the right thing to do, the fact remains that it was an almost revolutionary step for any young Indian Christian to take at that time, for current ideas were tending to shape themselves more and more in the opposite direction. A desire to make rapid material progress had weakened the Christian conception of renunciation within the church in the Punjab. It was urged that the Christian faith represented the fullness of human life, that material things were to be consecrated to Christ's service and not to be abandoned altogether. The Hindu idea of renunciation, it was asserted, differed fundamentally from the Christian. While there was a certain element of truth in this, it also tended to lead on to self-deception by leaving out of sight renunciation altogether. Sundar Singh himself knew very little concerning all these cross-currents of thought which hardly reached him in the Himalayas. He kept steadily on his way and soon had the great good fortune to meet S.E. Stokes, who had set out quite independently from a different angle on a somewhat similar quest. Not only did Stokes give him the loving companionship which he needed at the time, but still further, he set forward a conception of the sadhu life which brought 
it more into living touch with the Franciscan ideal. For Stokes was endeavouring to follow Christ along the pathway of poverty and renunciation followed by St. Francis of Assisi. Sunda had probably heard very little about St. Francis before he met Samuel Stokes. As a sadhu, he, he was keeping as near as possible to the ancient Indian tradition by abandoning all earthly ties in a search for God. He added the one supreme motive which transformed everything, for it was the constraining power of the love of Christ which supported him and gave him inward peace. He was a bhakta of the Lord Jesus. When, however, he came into closest touch with Samuel Stokes, immediately he saw that the service of God is not complete if it stands entirely alone. The service of man must be absorbed within the divine service as an integral factor. In the ancient Indian ideal, the human spirit goes forth in utter detachment from human society in order to find God. With St. Francis, on the other hand, God himself is found through the service of the poor. A common devotion to God's poor is itself a joyous pathway, leading to the beatific vision. In this, the Franciscan ideal was true to the mind of Christ. Sunda, with Stokes as his helper, made a very brave attempt to combine these two ideals. He loved solitude with all his soul, but he sought to unite it with the love of those who suffered pain. He beheld Christ in vision and imagination among those that were most afflicted. He heard his voice saying, I was afflicted in the afflictions. Thus his ardent devotion to Christ made him come away even out of his deepest meditations to serve them. Yet he never became involved in any outward organization of human service. And I have already pointed out how instinctively he shrank back when any attempt was made to get him to become an ordained minister of any Christian church. It is equally interesting to note how this deepest Indian instinct for solitude, alone with the alone, the second alone is a capital, so that might be referring to God, I'm not sure. Reasserted itself as he grew older. His whole inner structure shrank back from life absorbed in busy activity, which left no time for prayer. The inner life remained essential with him up to the very end. He took as we have seen, no vow of obedience to any earthly superior. He submitted to no rule of life framed by the head of an order. He joined no outward society except that of the Christian church itself. Nor did he advise others to do so. Though he greatly desired to throw in his lot with the brotherhood of the imitation. Out of his great love for Brother Stokes and Brother Weston, he remained even there unattached. 
while his whole heart went out in sympathy towards those who became members of the order, he felt more and more that his own true vocation did not lie in that direction. His addresses delivered in Switzerland in his addresses delivered in Switzerland, Sunda used a remarkable illustration from the mountain scenery which he loved best of all in the Himalayas. It appeared to him to carry its own lesson with it. The streams, he said, in the Himalayan mountains as they rush forth from the pure white snows cut their own course. Each one has its own appointed path which it follows down the mountain side. That rushing torrent of pure water from the heights is the true symbol of the Christian life as it comes direct from Christ himself. But when the same waters reach the plains, they carry the mud along with them and their tributaries are diverted into channels by artificial means forming irrigation canals. These two have their uses, but they depend on the streams which flow from the mountain heights for their perennial supply of fresh and living water. Even so, he would add, there may be the need of organizations formed by men to make the Christian life spread itself far and wide among the masses of mankind, but the pure rushing streams from the mountain heights must never be allowed to run dry. Thus, while in no way minimizing the value of a fully regulated Christian life, Sundar Singh felt that his own devotion to his master led him to a more individual and solitary course. The life in Christ which he had been called upon to follow must be on the heights, like a rushing mountain stream. Certainly in those early days when the ardor of his devotion was at its height, this spontaneous and creative freedom of the spirit was characteristic of the sadhu as we knew him. He would be there one day and away the next. Very early in the morning before daybreak he would start on some new journey, leaving a single word behind that he had felt the call and had gone. Then he would reappear as suddenly no one knew from whence. While telling the story of those early days and recounting his own spiritual companionship with Sadhu Sundar Singh, S.E. Stokes wrote as follows. Some weeks after I had changed my life, an Indian Christian was moved to join me. He was a convert from the Sikhs and had been traveling among the country as a Christian sadhu for more than a year before he took the vows and put on the robe of a friar. At a later date I hope to write an account of him and the work he has done, so will not at present enter upon the subject. When my work took me to the plains, he remained in charge of our interests up in the mountains and labored so faithfully and with such effect that all were astonished. His work has been far better than my own, and although he is scarcely more than a boy, he has suffered hunger, cold, sickness, and even imprisonment for his master. Before leaving him, I will tell of one thing which illustrates his saintly spirit 
and his fitness for the friar's life. He had been some hundreds of miles back into the interior and had been forced to pass through some very unhealthy country. Sunna Singh was attacked by fever day after day and also by acute indigestion. At length, one night, as we were trudging along, he became so bad that he could no longer walk and fell almost fainting on the road. Our way ran through the mountains and there was a bank by the side of it. To this I dragged him and set him against it in such a way that his head might be higher than his feet. He was trembling with the chill which precedes the fever and his face was drawn with pain caused by his stomach trouble. I was anxious because we were alone and on foot and the weather was very cold. Bending close to his ear, I asked him how he was feeling. I knew that he would never complain, but I was unprepared for the answer which I received. He opened his eyes and smiled absently. Then in a voice almost too low to be heard, he said, I'm very happy. How sweet it is to suffer for his sake. His with a capital H. This spirit is the keynote of his life and the dominating influence in all he does. In the hot weather of 1906, I had been taking duty in the similar hills at Sanawar, owing to an illness which made it impossible for me to remain in the plains during the season of the year. Sanawar is not far from the leper home at Sabatu, where Stokes and Sundar Singh were staying. For some reason, however, I was not able to come into close touch with them at that time, though I heard constantly about them. But in the following year, it was with the utmost eagerness that Principal Rudra and I seized the opportunity of going out together to Kotgar and thus meeting them at last face to face. I have already told the story of that meeting. During the years that followed right on up to 1911, Rudra and his sons used to go regularly with me to Bareri, above Kotgar. Our first inquiry each time when we arrived from Simla was about Sundar Singh and S.E. Stokes, and also concerning the company of crippled boys whom they used to bring with them each year to the hills. For they collected in the manner of the gospel the maimed, the lame, the halt, and the blind, along with certain children of leper parents, in order to form a summer camp for them in the hills. A happier company of children it would be impossible to meet, and they won our hearts' affection whenever we were able to meet or to be with them. At Bareri, which was only two miles distant, we were near enough to make it easy to run backwards and forwards up and down the hillside in order to join their company, while at other times it might not be possible to see Sundar Singh for more than a few days because of his wandering life. Here at Kotgar we could get more frequent opportunities of meeting, and it was easier also to speak about the subjects which we both had so deeply at heart. Not often, however, could he remain with us for long, even at Kotgar, for he would wander about the hills and then return. 
On our arrival early in July, we were likely to hear the news that he had already started out along the road and was on his way to Tibet, and that nothing had been heard of him since. During these vacations at Bareri, on rare occasions while Rudra and I would be spending our mornings in preparing our college lectures, it would be a very great delight to us when Sundar Singh came in unexpectedly from one of these long hill journeys and called to see us on his way down to Kotgar. At other times, late in the afternoon when our work was over, we used to go down the hillside to see him in the house where he stayed. The growing friendship with Sundar Singh, which was thus slowly maturing year after year, led on naturally to return visits paid by him to our home in the college where Rudra and I lived together. It would mean a time of great joy to both of us when he arrived. Susil Rudra's two sons, Shadir and Ajit, were great favorites with him, for he was always devoted to children, and these two boys were especially loved by him. They would run up to him and take his hands in theirs and ask about the crippled children by name and how they were getting on at school, what villages he had been able to visit and how he had been received. It was at such times as these that Sunda was at his very best, for the child heart came out in him without any restraint. All his natural reticence and reserve broke down and he was at home with them at once in joyous freedom and merry laughter. He would go on talking all day with them if only he had the time. Cecile Rudra enjoyed these visits most of all. He was a perfect host and his heart always went out to Sundar Singh with a kindly fatherly love. Their devotion to Christ united them as no earthly bond could do and drew their hearts together. No one, I believe, among Indian Christians was dearer to Cecile than his young, heroic follower of Christ. And no son could have loved his father more than Sundar Singh loved him. While many things in the Indian Christian church used to sadden Cecile as unworthy of the name of Christ crucified, the compensation came when he could welcome such a true follower of his master as Sundar Singh. He felt that if only the witness to Christ in India could take this form of devoted sacrifice, then all would be well. At that time, we had a remarkable group of young Indian Christians at Delhi studying under Principal Rudra. They have, gained, they have since gained distinction in many walks of life. The deepest Christian influence upon them when they were at college was the contact they were able to maintain with Sadhu Sundar Singh. One of the senior students of our party returned to us late one evening, carrying on his back a hillman who was in the last stage of a terribly infectious disease. He had found him in an unfrequented place at the edge of the jungle where he had been lying neglected, possibly for some days. So without a thought of danger, he had carried him on his back, single-handed, for nearly two miles along a difficult mountain track. Even the physical feat was remarkable. 
but the moral stamina that made him ready to risk a dangerous disease while others had passed by on the other side was more noteworthy still only because at that time he was living with the sadhu did the inspiration come to him with such compelling force as to make him act in this manner of course the uh, past on the other side is, um, is in inverted commas referring to the good samaritan story still further the humility and reticence with which this brave deed was done were themselves a reflection of sadhu's christian spirit i just want to pray father thank you for the story and just touch us and touch me lord touch each one listening that your anointing may be upon us in jesus name Amen.